Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... Basically, it drives a wedge between them and getting an education and getting out of disadvantage. Experts are calling on the Australian education system to rethink its current approach to discipline. Also... Science education is super important. And if we can switch kids on from a young age, we're going to be able to get a real shift in the way kids see science. A Brisbane organisation is showing school kids how fun and interesting science can be. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today, the Yes campaign took a blow over the weekend with majority of Australia voting no in the Voice to Parliament referendum. And now politicians are deciding what happens next. This morning, Deputy Prime Minister Richard Marles said the federal government will look at other ways to close the gap for Indigenous Australians. The referendum was not a vote against reconciliation. The referendum was not a a vote against closing the gap. In fact, I think if you look at the way in which both the yes and no cases were argued, uh, we can take from the referendum uh, an increased resolve to act on closing the gap and to act on reconciliation. And that's really what we need to take forward now. Opposition leader and prominent no campaigner Peter Dutton agreed all Australians wanted to help Indigenous people, but the voice was not the right method. Dutton claims he wants an audit into spending on Indigenous affairs and a Royal Commission into child sexual abuse in Indigenous communities. We're uh, setting up a process with uh, Jacinta and with Karen, as I announced on Saturday night, uh, and that's an important process for us because uh, we've got to stop Uh, The rorts and rip-offs, we've got to make sure that people are getting the money in the communities who are most in need, and that's uh, really what we're concentrating on. Indigenous leaders are calling for truth-telling and treaty in the wake of the Voices' defeat. The wise contributor from Nyada Media, Tangiora Hanaki, spoke to Noongar leader and activist Mervyn Eads about his thoughts on the outcome. I I voted yes, and, you know, I was optimistic, but deep, deep in my heart... I, I know and knew that we live in such a racist country for what our, what our people feel feel and go through all, each and every day and, you know, what what happened to our ancestors and our elders past. You know, um, yeah, that racism in Australia is massive and, you know, um, and, and, the, and, and the vote wasn't on anything to do with any, anyone else. It was on... You know, for our people to be put in the constitution, we've been here for 65,000 years and, you know, they've had a constitution here for 230 years but never never put us in it in the first place. And now that we asked to be in the, in the constitution with a voice, um, it, it seemed like, you know, a, a big deal to the Australian public, the majority of the Australian public, that is, not all, um, just the majority, but, um, yeah, race, racism is has stood in our way once more, but not not surprising at all to me. Mervyn, uh, you also um, are going to make a a stand about the, um, you know, when the Australian anthem is going to be sung in the future, what will you do? 
Mervyn Eads, uh, Senator Dorinda Cox shared a post uh, today saying now it's now time for the healing to begin because of the devastation. People have been crying, people have been um, blacking out their social media profiles. As you move forward, uh, how, how are you and your, your close-knit group going to, to move forward from this um, votes? You know, sister, um, you know, when, when they say move forward and healing, our, our, that's all our people have ever tried to do was uh, we've been trying to heal for the, for the last uh, 230-something years here in Australia and healing comes from the land and, you know, we're not recognised as the first Australians of this land and, you know, healing, I don't, I don't see no healing um, because, uh, because of what's happened yesterday but in Australia's past... How can we heal from racism? I can't. Is there anything else you want to say before I let you go, Mervyn? Yeah, just just to the Australian pub- public. You know, this this was and always will be Aboriginal land, and you know we must. I say our people need to have a serious, serious look at um, a treaty and demand a treaty uh, from from this government on our terms and uh, on our terms and conditions, not a dictated treaty, and. You know, the Australian public won't like that. And a treaty does not have to go to a referendum either. A, tre- a treaty can be done by, uh, from government if, if they want to be tr- truthful to themselves. And, you know, um, Australia said no to their um, referendum, but Australian, Australian government needs a treaty with us now. That was Noongar leader Mervyn Eads, ending the story by Niata Media's Tangiora Hanaki. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. Education experts are highlighting the ineffectiveness of school suspensions as a behavioural rectification strategy. Research appears to support an education-oriented approach rather than one focused on punishment. School suspensions are said to disproportionately impact students already experiencing disadvantage. And experts are calling on the Australian education system to rethink the current approach and explore alternative strategies. The Wire's Isaac Brogan spoke to Professor Linda Graham, Director of the Centre for Inclusive Education at Queensland University of Technology, to find out more. I have been researching suspension since 2018, I suppose. 
But before that, I was researching segregation and looking at young people who are basically getting kicked out of school and ending up in segregated settings for, you know, so-called naughty kids, behaviour schools and flexible learning options and so on. And one thing that was common to every single one of the kids that uh, I worked with was that they had had a history of being suspended from school again and again and again. And um, so, yeah, I became interested in suspensions because of that and because of what of what it did to these young people. It basically drives a wedge between them and getting an education and getting out of disadvantage. Experts and, and research seems to support uh, more of an education rather than a punishment sort of approach. Can you tell us a little bit more about this multi-tiered systems of support model? Absolutely. So multi-tiered systems of support has been around for quite some time. It originated in population health and essentially the idea behind it is that you, for example, in health, you have really good primary health services and then that means that, you know, you look after things before they become a problem and when they do become a problem, you then do something else about it, like, you know, sort of tier two or tier three type supports. But the critical aim is to meet need early and do it properly so that you have fewer people needing tier two and tier three type supports, right? So that idea came into education. It has been used with great success in the United States. And when you think about the United States, so some of the places that have been using it particularly well, Chicago Public School System, the Los Angeles United Schools District. So we're talking about places where there's significant poverty. You know, they're not exactly easy places to manage. Plus, they have guns and much more severe issues with drugs and gangs and so on than we have. So if a place like Chicago Public Schools has been using multi-tiered systems of support to improve school safety and attendance and student outcomes, then you would think that we would be, you know, hard on their heels to try and make it work here. The cool thing about multitude systems of support is that it puts the child in the middle, so the child is at the centre of everything, and it looks at the three domains of development, which is academic, behavioural and social-emotional. And I think in this country we tend to ignore the social-emotional and we don't understand well enough that Children need to be taught skills in order, like self-regulation, responsible decision-making, so on and so forth. They need to be taught those in order to be able to put them into play. And suspension is the absolute opposite of that because you're being taken away. You know, the expectation is that you're going to learn from a consequence, but actually the consequence can be something that kids kind of go, hey... I prefer going home from school. It gets me out of a place that makes me feel anxious that where I might be getting bullied or dealing with racism. So, hey, I'm going to keep doing this. But the other issue 
and we found that disability is a sort of common denominator, the most common underlying factor in the kids that are most overrepresented. And the issue there is that if someone has a disability, you have to change the way that you teach. It's actually a law to say that you have to provide adjustments to make sure that you know, that young person can access the curriculum, can be supported, and the kids that are being suspended the most often and the most times are those with disability. And it just shows you it doesn't work. You know, we keep talking about Indigenous disadvantage and what are we going to do to close the gap? And one of the things that I'm deeply concerned about is that Whilst increasing attendance is a, a key goal in the Closing the Gap strategy, there's nothing about suspension in any of the documentation around that. And the reality is that in Queensland, there are young people who are being suspended for truanting. We really need to actually close the gap on the gap between the strategy and what might be happening to these young people at school. That was Professor Linda Graham, Director of the Centre for Inclusive Education at Queensland University of Technology, ending that report. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Mianjin, Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Strawberry Hills on Koori Radio, 93.7 FM. To our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio. And to the other side of the country, to Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. A Brisbane organisation is showing school kids how fun and interesting science can be. Schools across Australia are inviting street science into their classrooms to motivate children to learn more about chemistry, physics and other STEM disciplines. Street science recently received a grant from the federal government to scale a program called The Sister Project to reach girls from regional and remote areas of Australia. The Wire's Eduardo Jordan spoke to CEO and founder of Street Science, Steve Liddell, at the Asia-Pacific City Summit to hear more about the organisation's goals for the future. So Street Science has been around for nearly 12 years. We're an education company uh, looking to get into schools and community events to tune kids in to science education and make it really meaningful, make it contextualised and bring it to life. So the reason we're at the Asia-Pacific City Summit is to tap into uh, the mayors and their delegates from all around Australia and Southeast Asia, just to bring in a little bit more work and uh, tap into some markets that we're not currently servicing. So you've been in the education sector for quite some time and you started this business 11 years ago. Uh, What's the progress you've seen on kids being interested in science during these 11 years? Yeah, it's a really good question. So before setting up street science, I was working in the education sector as a high school maths and science teacher. And the reason I set up the business back in 2012 was because I was seeing firsthand the number of students taking on the senior sciences was starting to decline. It was happening in our school, it's happening all around Queensland, but all around Australia and the world. So I didn't want to sit in the staff room and whinge about it. I thought I'd do something. So I got out and I set up the business and what we do these days, we've got a team of teachers and scientists who travel into schools and we supplement the education programs that the schools are running. So we'll bring in chemicals and resources to bring those science programs to life. 
And as a result of that, we're returning to schools year after year and we're starting to see that engagement really start to shift where originally you'd get lots of kids participate in the programs who'd say, oh, science is not for me or I'm no good at science. Because we're tapping in year after year, we're starting to really shift the way they see science education and therefore we're getting more kids engaged. And we're starting to see kids take on your senior sciences, your chemistry, your physics and your bio, and then they're starting to go on and study science at a higher level at university as well. Nice. And why are you saying in school so important for the future? Once again, uh, look, science, when we learn science, when we teach science really well, we're equipping kids with uh, a skill set for the future, so problem-solving skills. It's not just about the content that we teach within the classroom, it's about those skills and the, the ability to solve problems for the future. So if we have more kids engaged in science in high school and a tertiary level, we're going to have people going on into jobs in all sorts of industries who have these skill sets, which are really, really valuable. What areas are you uh, teaching students like besides uh, biology, chemistry, physics? Yeah, we've got a big focus on the chemical sciences and the physical sciences. So I think material science because we've found that when we speak to teachers and principals in the education system, we've got a lot of teachers out there, especially in primary schools, who are confident with your biological sciences and your earth sciences. So all of a sudden there was this... Uh, this market for your chemical science and physical. So we roll in, we bring those chemicals that schools often don't have access to, and we're able to do mind-blowing science demonstrations that teachers just wouldn't try in the classroom. And could you please tell us a little bit more about the great project that you're having uh, funds from the federal government to include girls into the STEM areas? Yeah, this is a really exciting project. It's called the SISTAR project. and. It's a creation, it's essentially an expansion of our uh, tried and tested products. What we've done is we've picked up some funding from the federal government, from the Women in STEM and Entrepreneurship Grants Round. And what we're doing with that funding is we're scaling up our programs and we're trying to get our programs in front of more girls around Australia. So previously where we did a lot of our work in major cities around Australia, all of a sudden we've got some assistance from the federal government to scale up and go into the regions, go into rural areas, go into remote parts of Queensland and the Northern Territory as well and engage with kids in schools that wouldn't have access to our programs otherwise. So we're looking for educators, principals, deputies who are working in schools who might be perhaps uh, witnessing intersectional disadvantage um, who would like access to our street science programs. We'd love them to reach out to us and uh, we'd love to come in and use a little bit of that funding to bring our programs to those schools. That was CEO and founder of Street Science, Steve Liddell, ending the report by The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. Having difficulty sleeping is a commonly reported issue among many, with a 2020 report estimating over half of Australian adults have one or more sleep-related problems. But experts say unhealthy sleep habits are hard to kick. Having good sleep hygiene is vital in living a happy, healthy life. But are there other factors that contribute as well? The Wire's Tony Pankaluic spoke with Dr Garika Mikic, a clinical sleep psychologist and research fellow at Flinders University, to find out more. So can you explain the different types of sleep cycles? So we do go through sort of a roller coaster, cyclic manner in our sleep. Before we had the advent of all the technologies we have now to measure sleep, there was this assumption that sleep was just a deep value of unconsciousness that at the start of the night when we fall asleep, 
sleep, we start off in light sleep and head off into the deep slumber for most of the night and then as we approach the morning that we get into lighter sleep. Now that's been heavily debunked. We know that that's actually not how sleep works. Sleep has what's called a 90-minute sleep cycle. They vary between 90 and about 120 minutes, so an hour and a half to two hours each. And in these sleep cycles, we go through four stages of sleep and they're classified into REM and non-REM sleep. So REM sleep stands for rapid eye movement sleep. We also know it as our dreaming sleep is a light stage of sleep, whereas stages one, two, and three are our non-REM sleep cycles, and they descend from light into very deep sleep. When we first fall asleep, we start off in light, stage one sleep, and that's when we fall asleep and might be watching something with our partner or a friend, and they nudge us and say, hey, wake up. We might not actually be asleep, but if we look at what we were watching on TV, we might have missed a snippet of something. So very light sleep doesn't really feel like sleep and we feel no different when we wake up out of it often. Stage two is deeper sleep. We need louder noises to wake us up. We need somebody to call out something more salient like our name in order for us to respond and wake up out of it and we'd know that we're asleep. Stage three is very deep sleep. It's the deepest stage of sleep and out of that sleep, it's very hard to wake up. Generally, we need to be poked and prodded, physically moved and even then, it's a very easy to return back to sleep and often while we strive for that deep sleep generally speaking most of us don't feel that deep sleep because it's such a state of deep unconsciousness that we tend to not feel it as much as we do the lighter stages of sleep now as I said REM is more around our dreaming sleep it's a very light state of sleep and it is classified by these rapid eye movements our eyes flicker back and forward and even our body is not in much of a state of arrest as it is awake and almost in a fight or flight or we're watching a horror movie movie. So increased heart rate, increased blood pressure, it makes us feel almost hyper aroused when we're in that state of sleep and, and that's why it has its own classification. So all the different stages of sleep serve different purposes and we need all of those in a certain amount. We have deeper sleep in the first half of the night, that's when we tend to have our solid sleep and in the second half of the night we have more awakenings and it's more likely that we will wake up. There was a fairly recent TikTok trend about brown noise. What is it in does it actually help with sleeping? So it was definitely a TikTok trend. There was absolutely no evidence base behind it. And really, there's not much difference in what brown noise is to other types of sonic hues, which is just our consistent frequency noises. So we've maybe ever heard of pink noise or brown noise or white noise. So they tend to not fluctuate in pitch or frequency as much. They tend to stay or remain consistent. But what they're really doing is just creating some background noise to filter out those abrupt noises that might interrupt our sleep, open up that gating mechanism. So having this background noise creates a consistent higher pitch, drowning out more abrupt noises. So it has some potential theoretically to help us sleep at night, but there's absolutely no evidence and there's nothing magical about a specific sound. And definitely if we have proper sleep disorders and proper sleep problems, they're not aids that we can use to actually remedy our sleep issues. We all know good sleep hygiene is essential for good rest and that anxiety, depression, personal trauma all play a role in insomnia. But what's the demographic statistics of people getting insomnia? So historically, insomnia seemed to have been more correlated with older age, but the more research that's been done to elucidate that, the more we know, it's more stick around response bias and the way that previous data have been collected. So we now know that doesn't really discriminate too much in terms of age and generally stats show that women 
women are more prone to it than men. But once again, it has a lot to do with reporting bias and how we perceive it. So even in terms of younger age, it has a lot to do also with access to treatment and priority. Often people don't see their sleep problems as being the main difficulty that they may experience. Often the sleep difficulties come along with things like stress, low mood, depression, anxiety. So people tend to focus on that and tend to think that if I remedy those things, my sleep should fall back into place on its own, which generally doesn't happen. Once the sleep problem is triggered by some of those initial stresses, it kind of takes a life of its own. And even when the stresses have passed, in most cases, people find that the sleep has now become a separate issue and something that they can't really get fully back on track. That was clinical sleep psychologist and research fellow at Flinders University, Dr. Gorika Mikic, ending that report. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jugara countries where this program has been produced. And we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. Thanks so much for your company and we'll see you next time on The Wire. Thank you.